Hello, I'm Caleb Howard, and this is Redemption Arc. This podcast takes stories from the Bible, Christian history, and Christian literature, and uses them to challenge the popular conception of God. For too long, people of all sorts have used the Bible to hold up outdated, isolating worldviews, changing the definitions of love and forgiveness in order to use religion as a weapon against people. This podcast will reframe the biblical narrative into a beacon of inclusivity and hope. God has thrown himself in between us and death. He has not only shown mercy on people who have time and time again made terrible decisions, but he has helped those people change and grow. No matter how badly we screw up, we are still loved and we still belong. Every single person who relies on God can claim their redemption arc. We've been doing a three-part series on the story of King Hezekiah from the Old Testament of the Bible, and we'll be finishing it up this week with a look at Hezekiah's progeny and how his life impacted the future generations. Unlike our first three stories, this one will be filled with hope, but it starts in a pretty dark place. There's a brief content warning, as we'll be dealing with stronger-than-usual violence this week. I'm going to use a phrase which sounds fairly similar to a recent campaign slogan in the United States. I'm generally a huge fan of cheeky pop culture references, so I want to make it explicitly clear today that any resemblance to the slogan is unintentional and that this podcast episode is in no way a political statement. It's not necessary to have heard the last episode, but it has some pretty important backstory and I'd strongly recommend going back and listening to it before you start on this one. In the last episode, Hezekiah was given 15 years to live. He used those 15 years to show foreign ambassadors where to find all his valuables, and a prophet warned Hezekiah that they'd be back with an army. The warning didn't faze Hezekiah in the slightest, because by the time they returned, he would be dead. Hezekiah did pass away in peace 15 years to the day after Isaiah had come by the palace letting him know that he would recover from his illness. There is a peaceful transition of power to Hezekiah's 12-year-old son, Manasseh, but that's about where the peace stopped. Because on the day of his coronation, Manasseh had an important announcement to make. So, remember when his dad had told the prophet that he didn't really care about future generations? The people did not remember that, because Hezekiah had wisely chosen not to make the fact that he was a giant jerk public. Well, Manasseh explained, His father did not care about posterity at all. His father's words. Which means that he had raised, or rather, not raised, his son up to become a little Joffrey. So fancy birthday parties where he humiliated the jesters, capricious demands for new and depraved entertainment, some light mayhem. How far was Manasseh going? Straight into the murder, Manasseh grinned, starting with Isaiah. He would be. Hmm, how bad could it get? The people looked at Manasseh with worried looks. They weren't looking to get stuck in a lifetime of oppression, misery, and being ground down into poverty by an unsympathetic government. If they did exactly what he said, he'd be merciful to them, right? 
Manasseh laughed. Nope. He was going to be king for 55 years, and most of that time he would be constantly doing unthinkable things to pretty much everybody. Because they believed in monarchy, they were more concerned with having a ruler whose great-grandfather they liked than someone who actually treated them fairly. They just have to tough this one out. I should be nicer. It's hard to have the courage to risk everything and revolt against a tyrannical government. Especially after years of peace, the confidence that things can't possibly get that bad will get you through a lot. It won't get you through everything, and the people of Judah found that out when Manasseh put Isaiah into a hollow log and sawed him in half. He then decided to adopt, out of all possible religions, a religion that required you to roast babies alive. This was comic book level villainy. How did he even come up with this stuff? Manasseh sacrificed his own firstborn son to the gods in this manner in the Vale of Hinnom, a valley full of debased practices up to and including child sacrifices. He also put altars to these false gods in the very temple of Yahweh. In this way, he made the home of mercy a house of oppression. Many began to pray for Yahweh to intervene like he had in the days of Hezekiah. God had saved them from foreign dangers, but Manasseh's oppression was far worse than they ever feared from Sennacherib and the Rabshakeh. The years wore on, and the prayers continued to ascend before the throne of God. So did the stench of the child sacrifices that took place in the Vale of Hinnom. The prophets began to write about the Vale. It would become a place of disgrace, fit for nothing but the incineration of garbage. The phrase that Jesus used to describe the punishment of the wicked, the phrase translated hell, was Veil of Hinnom. The people praying asked how that worked. Would the Veil of Hinnom be on fire forever? Because they really wanted Manasseh to suffer eternally burning hell. No, they didn't. Eternity is a really hard concept to grasp, and once you start thinking about it, the idea of eternal torture is incredibly barbaric. The reason why Jesus used the phrase Veil of Hinnom was to show that the wicked would be destroyed forever, like garbage. They would not suffer everlasting torture. Only the memory of what they did would live forever, as a warning of how bad things could get when humans crave power and oppression. As Manasseh got worse and worse, he focused his capris inward. Meanwhile, the Assyrians, still smarting from their defeat at the hands of Hezekiah, began to build up their forces. Manasseh was blissfully oblivious until one morning, he looked over the city walls and saw thousands of Assyrians baying for his blood. He desperately tried to work out a deal, but he had nothing to bargain with. In the 50 years since his father died, the city had deteriorated into squalor and filth. The gates broke open before the Assyrian battering rams, and men poured into the city, searching every inch. But they were not here for loot. They were here for revenge, and Manasseh knew it. He attempted to flee, but there were too many of them. They seized him, held him firmly in place, and stuck a hook through his nose. Wait, the prophet Isaiah threatened Sennacherib with a hook, and I thought it was just a metaphor. Nope, the Assyrians grinned. Poetic justice, am I right? Yahweh threatened Sennacherib with a hook, but it was Manasseh who got it. The Assyrians jerked the rope attached to the hook, and Manasseh yelped and stumbled forward. Then they pulled out the whips. 
Manasseh was not going to have a fun time. If I were shackled behind a wagon with a fish hook in my nose, I might start rethinking my life choices. Manasseh, apparently, was a lot more stubborn than I am. He wasn't completely incorrigible, though, and running barefoot over broiling sand, desperately attempting to keep the rope hooked through his nose slack, he began to think. Every sharp stone slicing his feet, every dust storm whipping sand into his face, and every jerk of the ring that nearly sent him sprawling face first, and Manasseh began to realize what the people who he had tortured had felt. It was weird being on the other side, and he didn't like it. Though he had vehemently rejected his father's god, Manasseh began to question his distaste for Yahweh. By the time he had made it the several hundred miles to the capital city of the Assyrians, Manasseh was covered in bruises and burns, in agonizing pain, and sending up regular prayers to Yahweh. As much as he didn't want to admit it, the prayers had started out as self-serving. But as time went on, Manasseh began to think differently. The gods that he had served were brutal. They constantly demanded offerings of blood. He had remade himself in their image by becoming just as brutal as them. But Yahweh had worked amazing miracles for his people, and all he asked in return was love. As a young man, the worship of Yahweh had sounded weak and cowardly. But his father's reign had been one of prosperity and peace, simply because the people had loved their king and their god, not feared them. Manasseh began to realize that he had mistook Yahweh's love for weakness, when in fact it was strength. Manasseh realized that those influencers, who had encouraged brutality, toughness, and a show of force, were merely insecure about their own weaknesses. The greatest form of strength was love. As the months wore on, Manasseh no longer regretted his situation. He saw that his own actions had been the very thing to bring his kingdom crumbling down. He began to regret the kind of person he'd become, though. He had become full of anger and selfishness, and he wanted to change. One morning, in the middle of his prayers, Manasseh was interrupted by a guard. The guard wordlessly stepped into Manasseh's cell and removed his shackles. The disgraced king asked where he was being taken, but the guard remained silent. He walked Manasseh out of his cell and through the prison. Everyone was silent, and Manasseh was strangely resigned to his execution. He prepared to be taken to the gallows, or to whatever form of torture had been reserved for him, when the guard stopped at a camel. Several Hebrew merchants sat nearby on their own camels. Manasseh did a double-take. The Assyrians told Manasseh that he was free to go. He was what? Manasseh couldn't believe his ears. He was free. No, they didn't like it, but the order had come directly from the king, and Manasseh was going to be set free. They recommended he get out of there quickly before they changed their minds. Or don't. They would really like to imprison him again. Manasseh's camel trudged back to Jerusalem, but the king danced and sang the whole way back. Yahweh had heard him and given him a second chance that he absolutely didn't deserve. Praise him! His shouts echoed to heaven, and God was pleased. 
When he arrived home, Manasseh knew he wasn't long for the world. He was elderly, at least for the ancient world. Though he did his best to undo the harm he had caused, he didn't have enough strength to complete the job. But he did spend time with his children and grandchildren. Unlike Hezekiah, who had neglected future generations, Manasseh gave them his undivided attention. Though he wouldn't be alive much longer, perhaps his grandson and successor, Josiah, would take over what he failed to accomplish and reform the country. Josiah was only eight when he arose to the throne, but he knew what he wanted. He would be better. He spent his youth reading and researching, and by the time he was 16, he had fully committed himself to Yahweh. First, he hunted down the remnants of the death cult his grandfather Manasseh had sponsored. The child sacrifices in the Vale of Hinnom had to stop. When the priests refused to stop burning people alive, he had them executed. Next, he hired builders to repair the damage from his grandfather's neglect. Every step he took was calculated to undo the effects of his grandfather's tyranny and oppression. Yet there was a lot he still did not know. Ten years later, in an unused cabinet in the back of the temple, someone discovered a book of God's laws. Manasseh had destroyed nearly everything to do with Yahweh, and Josiah had been hunting the old writings for years. The servants immediately brought the book to King Josiah, and he began to read. And what he read horrified him. He began to cry in anguish. He'd tried so very hard, and he'd still screwed up so much. His people weren't remotely following God's law. Josiah sent for a prophet. How bad was it? The prophet, Huldah, frowned as she stood before the king. Her eyes were full of pity as she saw the king's anguish, yet she had to share exactly what God said. If King Josiah hadn't heard the legend that his great-grandfather, Hezekiah, had once been warned of eventual doom, now he had. It was true. One day, the kingdom would be destroyed. King Josiah stood up and banged his fists against the wall. He had done his best. Why was he being punished? Hulda shook her head. He wasn't being punished. In fact, he had done so much, and God was so proud of him. To God, it didn't matter so much what you did, but the effort you made with the knowledge you had, and Josiah had put more effort in than anyone God had ever known. King Josiah had done incredible things for the kingdom. No, the destruction of the kingdom wouldn't be Josiah's fault, and it wouldn't come in the king's lifetime. But injustice isn't easily cured, and it had infected the very systems of the country. Though God knew Josiah had made considerable reforms, and would reform much more during the course of his life, the people were stuck in their ways, and they would eventually revert back to the horrific systems of oppression that would one day force God to intervene. Josiah frowned. Was there a chance he could do something to change the future? Hulda shook her head. No. But he could inspire individuals to be better. He could inspire the kingdom to be better. As long as he lived, he could sponsor a golden age of justice the likes of which Judah had never seen before. King Josiah nodded. He knew his mission. He gathered the people and read to them the book of God's laws. 
he admitted his weaknesses and urged the people to admit theirs. Though perhaps it wouldn't last forever, for a few beautiful moments they could build a country where mercy and justice flourished and all were free from oppression. King Josiah fought to reform Israel for 13 more years, but everyone has a weakness, and Josiah had his too. When a neighboring king, King Nico, went out to war, Josiah thought the ruler was marching against his kingdom and mustered his armies. He received messages from Nico, explaining that he was on his way to kill somebody else and that he had nothing against King Josiah, but Josiah was too afraid to show weakness to back down. Instead, he attacked Nico, and in the ensuing battle, Josiah was fatally wounded. In Star Wars, Kylo Ren wanted to be like his grandfather. The grandfather who lost his limbs and everyone he loved, suffered unimaginable pain, and lived a life of profound loneliness and suffering. Similarly, Josiah's son Jehoahaz decided to imitate his ill-fated great-grandfather and restart the oppression all over again. Because we always want a happily ever after, the story has a sad ending. But there aren't happily ever afters on this earth. Instead, there are beautiful moments that we have to hold on to. This story is one of those beautiful moments. Manasseh's repentance broke the back of oppression and gave thousands of people years of hope and peace. Manasseh's story illustrates God's willingness to build us back better. Manasseh's repentance ended with his restoration. And though his brutality had led the Jewish people down the same dark path, during the reign of Josiah, God brought the people back to communion with him in a way that they never had had before. Manasseh's story illustrates the concept of forgiveness that is unique to biblical Christianity. Human nature is very transactional. One person wrongs another, and we default to thinking how we'll punish the other person in order to reach a moral equilibrium. God operates far beyond this concept. If God's goal was to give everyone their fair portion of suffering, he never would have sent his son to bear the pain of an entire planet. But God does not operate according to the human perspective of fairness. Instead, God is a proponent of a transformative justice where what matters is simply the desire to change and grow. In many other religions, the good place is a lot more transactional. In Islam, for example, if one's bad deeds outweigh their good, they will be denied entrance. In Catholicism, the vast majority of people will have to go to purgatory to have their sins tortured out of them before they can inherit heaven. In Jainism, the only way to attain enlightenment is to die by starvation. Nor is Protestant Christianity exempt. It's a common belief that it's a Christian's duty to suffer for the sake of suffering, as if what makes them happy is necessarily at odds with pleasing God. Biblical Christianity comes with a surprisingly modern focus on mental health. Understanding that past trauma and pain is often the reason why people act out. Biblical Christianity focuses on changing the internal nature of a person rather than modifying their faulty external behavior. It focuses not on someone's past, but on their future potential. Christianity is about bringing people from the verge of ruin and building them back better than they possibly could have imagined. There's a poem that reads as follows. 
Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That is what Christianity is about. It's not about performance at various ceremonies, like some sort of show horse. It's a way of life that focuses on giving people second chances and showing mercy to people who don't deserve it, because that's what God has done for us. A trigger warning here. We're going to get into some self-harm-related topics. It's an important and painful part of life that needs addressing, but I understand that for certain audiences, it may be triggering at this time. If you'd like to skip this section, you can skip ahead two minutes or come back next week. I have nothing but love and support for those who are dealing with self-harm, and I encourage them to get the help they need. Unfortunately, the toxic mentalities that lead to mental health crises in individuals are often prominently injected into religion in one of two ways, and it very much hurts people and rightfully deters them from religion. Narcissism tends to create a religion that prescribes suffering for those who disagree with them. This type of religion condemns the people who make different life choices to eternal torture and attempts to motivate non-believers through fear. In contrast, self-harm tendencies create a system of belief that requires people to punish themselves to gain God's favor. In ancient Israel, the worshippers of Baal cut themselves with knives in order to secure their God's favor. Catholicism praises self-infliction of suffering, including actual self-harm, as penance for sin. And if you accuse me of making that up to be anti-Catholic, I read several Catholic articles promoting self-harm while researching for this episode. Even Protestant Christianity puts us in the mindset of willful self-abasement so that we can get a nice prize at the end. Christianity calls us to reject these thought patterns and subscribe to the heavenly reality that we are constantly growing into something that looks more like Jesus, and no matter how big of mistakes we make along the way, we're still heading toward our destination. Past actions, no matter how bad, are simply symptoms of the illness we are healing from. We're already taking the medication, the symptoms are slowly starting to abate, and we are seeing our reflection in the mirror slowly transform into the reflection of Jesus. Quote, from glory to glory. The story of Manasseh is in the Bible to illustrate just how much God is willing to forgive. If the only people we had a record of God forgiving were moderately bad, many of us would think we weren't eligible for the full clean slate. If the person who was forgiven had to live the rest of their life in penance as a hermit or monk, we might start creating either one of those narcissism religions or one of those self-harm religions, depending whether it was ourselves or someone else who we saw as evil. But the story of Manasseh tells us of a king that got just about as bad as you can get, and nonetheless was restored to his position of power and privilege that he lost because of his brutality. A person that got as bad as you could get, but was still restored to deep communion with God. A ruler who influenced his country to do evil, but whose regret turned the tide and brought about a golden age of peace. It's not a story excusing bad actions, but one that shows that no matter how awful anyone was, they can move beyond what they were and focus on what they can become. This isn't prosperity gospel, because the prosperity gospel is equally transactional. God's message is as simple as it is anathema to our transactional nature. 
There's no way that we could ever afford a second chance, but God gave it to us as a free gift. And he will give us that free gift time and time again, as many times as we need it. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. That's all for this week. We've wrapped up the Hezekiah arc, and next time we'll be covering the parable of the Good Samaritan. I understand that it might seem like a bit of a milquetoast story after we've covered entire armies being wiped out by angels, time reversing itself, and maniacal kings, but I promise you that the Good Samaritan is one of the Bible's most radical stories and we'll learn just who to trust when you're making a dangerous journey through the middle of nowhere. Thank you so much for listening. Please leave a five-star review and tell your friends about this podcast. I'd really appreciate your help sharing and growing this show. Credits to Caleb Howard for script writing and narration. Theme music is by Roa and Zakar Valaha. Other music credits are listed in the episode's description. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.